We all feel better. In the dark. We all feel better. In the dark. In conclusion, if you find yourself falling asleep, having a dream child in the middle of a nightmare, while you're trying to wake up when you're being chased by a guy with razors on his fingers, and you don't know it's a new nightmare, and then you got Jason, he's got an axe, got Kelly rolling, she's not saying, nightmare baby, nightmare baby, nightmare baby. License to fill H-Y. Once upon a time on a Super Bowl night, two guys from BK brought the points to life. Gave you some previews and some laughs. Was it no big thing? No one thought it would last. Then one started growling at the mention of a chick. The other guy would lose it every time he got pissed. Next thing you know, they got a good fan base. So they said, what the hell? Let's continue to pace. No stone uncovered. They will take on a topic. Might bring on a guest. And together they rock it. Cause they're in like Flint. Two mice is a cool. If you don't know the beautiful one, they'll take you to school. I'm talking about Tom, DJ, and Derek Ferguson. The best podcast out, hands down, it's set. So in the tub, in the car, if you're chilling in the park, welcome to another show of Better in the Dark. Go out and play nothing but poker. See, what you're doing, Poker, you hit a girl, and you poke her. You know, it sure ain't easy for great movies to show with here on Midnight Madness. That's why I don't. I figure, why bend over backwards for a movie when I can please many more people just by bending over forwards? My lords and ladies, this is Lord Bloodraw's Tremulous Trailers. I am your host, Lord Bloodraw, hipping you to one of the transcendent truths of coming attractions. A great trailer does not mean a great movie. And until we get back in touch with you... Go watch that movie. Right, Davin? Go watch that your movie. <laughs> You're listening to WBITD, Brooklyn, New York. Our next program is Better in the Dark Horror Host Theater with Lord Blood Raw. <laughs> And if that doesn't give you a clue as to what you can expect from this episode, I'll be more than happy to tell you we are blessed with having a guest host today. It's a yeah. very special guest host. Tom, fill us in on the background of our guest host, well, Lord Blood Raw. Lord Blood Raw, the Bay Area's own. He is the host of Lord Blood Raw's Nerve Wracking Theater, and there, I was also trying to come up with the auditorium. Lord Blood Raw's Nerve Wracking Auditorium. Nerve Auditorium. Oh, okay. And he is one of many people right now that is carrying on a tradition that's part of American folklore. And one of the reasons Derek and I want to have this episode. Yeah, and it's one that isn't as prevalent as it used to be when you and I were growing up as children in the late 60s and early 70s that we had horror movie hosts. Oh yeah, absolutely. They were the gateway. They were the introduction to these great old films. In fact, my dear lord, they were the pusher uh, man. um, You were (laughs) treat to one of the grandmasters of the horror movie host, John Stanley, right? John Stanley. I have had the honor with working with the great John Stanley. A couple of months ago, actually, I hosted a show that was a tribute mm-hmm. to the show that he took over from Bob Wilkins, Creature Feet. Right. That's the local Ooh. San Francisco Bay Area classic show that was, again, the gateway for all horror movie fans and science fiction fans of a certain age. That was the introduction to these films. And I did a Creature Features tribute showing a great documentary mm-hmm. by a documentary filmmaker named Tom Wersh, who was also the official Creature Feet 
Features archivist. And John Stanley and Tom Horsch were both the special guests there. And I am very privileged to be working with John Stanley again coming up October 29th in just a couple of weeks. He's going to be a special guest at the big Halloween spooktacular. I should say Halloween spooktacular. It's happening at the Bal Theater in San Leandro, uh, California. He'll be a special guest again, and he is just a great guy who has forgotten more than I will ever know about horror and science. I still have a thumb-eared copy of that first printing of the Creature Feature Horror Movie Guide. Oh, wow. Oh my God. Authoritative. Absolutely yeah. authoritative. And the thing I always found fascinating about Stanley was that, unlike other horror movies, like our big horror movie host here in the New York tri-state area was Zachary. Zachary, yeah. Kane. I still am a big fan of Zachary. Still mm. doing it. Still making the convention appearances and short films at 93 years old. Oh, so he's still around. God yeah. bless him. I had no idea. And Zachary was a guy that also was in mainstream. He showed up on Match Game. And, I think the only know, horror movie <laughs> host to actually have a top 40 record. Oh, okay. he released I've Got All of His Records. Because <laughs> I, I think Dinner with Drac actually made it on to national airplay. That's right. Dinner yeah. with Drac. This is a guy that would pop up on the Mike Douglas yeah. show, and he was kind of like mainstream. So he was for cool. A while he was. Do you remember Derek U sixty eight? U yeah, vaguely. The attempt to do a broadcast version of MTV that got sued out of existence by MTV. Oh yeah, okay. Um, now I know what you're talking. They about. had Zachary host late night Friday program for about an hour, which was him showing. Spooky videos and doing his little sketches with Fang and his wife and the brain in the cellar and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, the brain. Okay, yeah. Which was, was the cauliflower. Was that called ZTV? Here in New York, it was a pay broadcast service called Mecca Home Theater. Well, Mecca Home Theater, That, that had right. decided after a while to go broadcast and had the idea of doing a MTV-style show, which is showing videos, and exactly was one of the things that they brought on along with Uncle Floyd. That was a precursor to HBO and, and yeah. Cinemax and show. Time and all those was well, 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 home theater. Home I theater. remember because I had it. <laughs> uh, oh. Since you had it, you don't remember the, the idea of switching to yeah, Channel yeah. 68 and trying to see through the squiggles. And it was only on for certain hours a day. Right. You could only watch it between hours of 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. and 12 p.m., and that was it. But it was a very new thing at the time. But I remember exactly. I remember, yeah. of course, Chilla with the famous six fingered hand that come out of the swamp. Yes, yes, yes. Classic, classic. Um, the Creep, who is on our version of Creature Feature for couple of years in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. What was the one that they had the Frankenstein head and then it slowly dissolved into a skull with the smoke coming out of it? Was that Channel 5? I think that was Channel 9. I think that was Fright Night you're thinking of. Right, because Chiller was Channel 11. Chiller was Channel 11. Right. Creature Feature was Channel 5 and Fright Night was Channel 9 which was on Saturday nights. So now that we finished that, that. <laughs> reminiscing, let's... Although started. I do want to say something about John Stanley. Is the thing yes. that fascinates me is that unlike people like Zachary and Goulardi mm-hmm. and Dr. Morgus, who are the other real great grandmasters and Vampira, Stanley chose not to use a pseudonym, not to create a monstrous... Alter ego. ego. Yeah. He I, just was a guy who loved horror movies mm-hmm. and sat down with you every week to share his love of them. Exactly, yeah. Well, he, just like Bob Wilkins before him, who actually started the show, Bob didn't wear any kind of costume, used his real name, Bob Wilkins. Right at the beginning of the show, there was an attempt to kind of betray him as... Mr. Excitement, which he wasn't. He wasn't. <laughs> I've seen footage of Bob Wilkins, and yeah, that's just... 
Oh, yeah. I mean, he looked more like an accountant. He'd be sitting in this yellow rocking chair next to a table with a skull with a candle stuck in it, smoking a cigar, and mm -hmm. just introduce you to these movies. And more often than not, he would tell you, this movie is just really bad. This movie is bad. He would take out copies of the TV Guide and tell you what was on other stations. And tell you, just don't, don't bother saying But by the same, he also had classic films, all the Universal Package, mm -hmm. the Hammer films, and all that. But yeah, John Stanley was kind of the technical advisor to Bob Wilkins in the early days of Creature Features. And then when Bob just decided to leave the show, because he, he got tired, he, mm -hmm. by the time he left, he was doing a Friday-Saturday night show, a kid's show, five days a week, called Captain Cosmic, right. but he was also filling in for the weatherman on the temple. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, well. Well, that's what generally happened with these horror hosts at the dawn of television, is that it was somebody they grabbed from the newsroom. That's right. Mm, okay. And they're also, John is very different from a lot of the horror hosts from that era in that he was, and still is, a true fan. Whereas, mm -hmm. like you say, they would grab somebody from the mailroom or the weather guy and say, okay, you're going to host horror movies. And they wouldn't know what these films were. They weren't fans. <laughs> I mean, in most cases, they weren't fans. They didn't know anything about the film. They just put on a costume and the spooky boys and right. just did it. That's something that differentiates the newer crop of horror mm -hmm. hosts, too, is that the newer crop of horror hosts are not only fans of the genre, but also fans of the previous generation of horror hosts. Right. You have a lot of them, you and I were talking, Tom, you have, that went on to become celebrities in their own right. It kind of eclipsed what they originally started out to be, yeah. horror movie hosts, and they became oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. They became stars themselves and went on to their own movies at conventions well, and yeah. all this other kind of stuff. Yeah, we were talking about both Elvira and Dr. Morgus, yeah, who had that regional, which I seem to be the only person north of the Mason-Dixon line who's actually seen the wild world of Dr. Morgus. Yeah, you probably are. <laughs> I've seen clips on, I want to say YouTube or somewhere. I've seen a couple of his shows, and he, he was great. <laughs> Him and Chopsley. The thing was is that at the end of his run in New Orleans, somebody came up with the idea of syndicating his show. Mm -hmm. So for about a summer, one year in the late 80s, we got it on Channel 11 on Saturday afternoon, and I was just fascinated by it because it was just so odd. Exactly, and he had a great running skit where he was constantly introducing these scientific discoveries mm -hmm. that he had made or these wild experiments. I loved his stuff. I wish he was... Oh, is he still around? I'm not know? sure if he's still alive. Last time I looked, because I was actually looking for information on the film, which I saw on a VHS around about 1995 or so. I think he may have passed on. But, okay, who would you considered to be the grandmasters of oh, the first crop. The first crop, so you're talking the 50s, I've got to say Zachary. Mm -hmm. For me, Zachary. I love Goulardi, too, who right. had an incredible persona as this kind of weird beats, hipster, <laughs> and funny. My God, Goulardi was just... Oh. But Zachary, just all around, that look, the voice, his improvisational mm -hmm. comedy talents, he was just... As a matter of fact, last year I was at a convention in Indiana, which was a huge... So was this Horror Weekend? Horror Weekend, yes. Absolutely. And all the horror hosts there kind of consider vampire as mother and Zachary as father. <laughs> okay, you know, most appropriate. Uh, Zachary was the grandmaster, but you always have a soft spot in your heart for the horror host you grow up with. So for yeah. me, Bob Wilkins was the introduction to this entire genre and the whole horror host thing for me. 
But Zachary was just fantastic. You mentioned he was on Mike Douglas. I believe that is where I first saw him. I vividly remember this because I watched Mike Douglas a lot when I was a kid. Don't yeah. ask me why, but I was fascinated with Mike Douglas and yeah. Tom Snyder. And you Dinah know. Shore. Oh, yeah. For some, I mean, yes. Now, to me, those were talk shows right. compared to the garbage we get now. And that they had a variety of people right. from all right. different careers. Yeah, I vividly remember seeing Zachary appearing on Mike Douglas more than once. Cutting up that giant amoeba. Remember that? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> cutting up that big amoeba and pulling the jello and bones. And, and uh, this was in the middle of daytime, too. I didn't have to wait for Friday Saturday night. This was in the middle of daytime. I said, wow, I didn't know talk <laughs> shows were this good. Why Lord Broadrock? Why did I pick the name Lord Broadrock? Yeah. <laughs> okay, about four years ago, well, it, around the time that I was even considering doing the horror host thing, I had to have a fairly major surgery. Everything was fine. And the hospital called me up and said, you need to make an appointment for an autologous blood draw. And the first thing that popped in my head was, what an incredible name. <laughs> autologous blood draw. That's so cool. That's great. My second question is, what the hell is an autologous blood draw? And it's when you give blood for yourself, they store for you in right. case they've got to give you blood during your surgery. Oh, okay. Autologous blood draw. And I thought, oh, that's an amazing name. So when the opportunity to host came, I took that, and I used Lord just because everything else was taken. If you're going to get into it, why not take a title, be the Lord of... <laughs> well, I think it also gives you that great opening where you go, you address everybody, my lords and ladies. Mm-hmm. Oh, my lords and ladies. I love that. Now, that brings me to my next question. How did you get into this? I literally just fell into it. I've got a, a really good friend of the family, the Chenard family, own a winery in Castro Valley, very close to where I live. Okay. And I introduced Damien, the winemaker there, to the Ed Wood classic, Plan 9 from Outer Space. He fell in love with it. And he said, Mike, we should show this at the winery and do a movie night because we do concerts all summer and all that. We should do a movie night. And I said, fantastic. That's a great idea. So we got a hold of a local host. And the show came off, but there were some miscommunications as to who was going to provide what equipment. And there were just some miscommunications happened. But the show came off and it was fine. So the next day, Damien came over. And we're sitting there with a glass of wine. It was me, Damien, and my wife were sitting there. And he said, you want to do another movie night, but... Do you know any other hosts? And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't think John Stanley is really hosting anymore, and I don't know any others. And after a little while of this back and forth, my wife turns to me and said, well, why don't you do it? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I was like, ah, well, okay. That was the birth of Lord Blood Drive. The next year, I did my very first shows at the Chenard Winery. We did two shows that September. The following year, we did three. This last year, we sold out one last year. This year, we had good crowds and sold out our first show, Creature from the Black Lagoon, to the point where we had to turn people away. And we did every Saturday night. Wow. And then from there, I started doing shows at the Bow Theater and other theaters around. Mm-hmm. When the great guys at Drunken Zombie allowed me to do a podcast on their network. And I love that podcast. I want to recommend that to everybody, particularly people like Derek and I who are really into the golden age of radio. Oh, I love that you dig up these real obscurities, like that pilot for that Bela Lugosi. Oh, wasn't that amazing? Oh my goodness, yeah. Wasn't that an incredible series? That would have been fantastic. And that's the only one. It was a pilot, Mystery House. It was all going to be based on the old Grand Guignol plays in Paris, the torture theater of Paris. He was going right. to bring these to radio, and for some reason nobody picked it up, but that episode still exists. I was really happy to present that one. 
Do you think that the horror host tradition started because most of these radio shows had hosts themselves? Good point. I was thinking, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. When you talk about the first horror host, we tend to think television, of course, and Mm -hmm. you go back to Vampyra. Started in 1954, so she's kind of the first, I guess, quote unquote, documented yeah. horror host. But the very first entity you could really call a horror host was on radio in 1931. It was a radio show called The Witch's Tale, and the host was Nancy, the old witch oh, yeah. of Salem. And she would introduce these tales. You would walk into her hovel and you'd hear the pot bubbling and her wise black cat sitting next to her meowing and I'd be a 103-year-old today. Well, I'll tell you one of my details. And introduce the story, and the story would ensue from there. And then she was the first one. And then from there, you had Lights Out. You had Inner Sanctum Mysteries with Raymond. You had The Hermit's Cave with The Hermit, which was the male version of The Witch's Tale. And in fact, from those radio days, William Gaines was so influenced by those that it influenced the creation of the EC comics. Because they all have horror hosts. There was the Crypt Keeper, there was the Old Witch, I forgot they hosted Vault of Horror. Well, I think it was just called the Vault Keeper. The Vault Keeper, oh, yeah. Right? yeah. There was a Crypt the Keeper, the Vault Keeper, yeah. Keeper. yeah. So those were horror-hosted comics. From, it went from radio into comics and TV around the same time. Yeah, because you had Boris Karloff with Thriller, right? Right. Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock yeah. presented. Mm-hmm. Alfred, right. Really started on radio. Really began on radio. We talked about Vampyra. Myla Nervi, amazingly alluring woman. I mean, she just looked incredible in that sleeky black dress. <laughs> Two inch Ah, yeah. Fantastic. From L.A., as a matter of fact. Right. ABC L.A. Now, she's interesting. The thing that's really bizarre about her was that she led the pack in 1954 before the whole onslaught of horror hosts. Right. And the onslaught wasn't because of her. It was because Universal Studios in 1957 released, not all, but most of their classic horror films, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman, etc., to television for the first time. And that was called the Shock Movie Packet. So these television stations were picking this up, and maybe because of the success of Vampire in L.A., I'm not quite sure, but they all said, hey, what if we got that guy out of the mailroom? Right. <laughs> Put him in a costume. Who needs a couple a- extra bucks and say, listen, just go out there and sell well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that the perception with a lot of these television stations back in the 50s was that these were films that were going to be primarily for the kids. For the kids, yeah. Oh, but they did, but they did put them on late at night, yeah. and that perception kind of backfired on them. Zachary tells stories about the television station getting letters and saying, my son saw Dracula and can't sleep, and, uh, and you're ruining the youth of America. And then, you're going to get that in every generation. Yeah. They kind of backfired, but kids obviously stayed up late at night. They obviously stuck away from their parents and sat there in the dark watching these movies. I was lucky that I had parents say, yeah, kid, go ahead and watch it. Don't bother. Yeah, you know, Friday and Saturday nights. Mom, can I stay up and watch Night of the Living Dead? Yeah, 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 go ahead. ahead. Just don't bother me. (laughs) (laughs) That explains a lot, (laughs) Derek. Yeah, yeah, it does, actually. Now we've got some of your background. We know how much you love the genre. Let me ask you this question. Why do you think that the age of horror hosts has passed by? You think that we just don't need horror hosts anymore, that we've got too sophisticated and jaded to look at a guy? See, me, I'm thinking that this whole thing kind of morphed into a program which I really don't care for, but a lot of people thought it was brilliant, Mystery Science Theater, yeah. where they actually made fun of the movies mm-hmm. that they were showing. Did it morph into that because we got
got too jaded and sophisticated for horror movie hosts? Well, actually, we are kind of in the dawn of another age of horror hosts. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, up until very, very recently, on a Saturday night, you had the MeTV network, you could watch Spanguli, who's been around for years, producing new shows. Now, Spanguli is not the son. Well, he started out as son of Spanguli. Right. And got permission just to take over the character and be Spanguli. So he's just now known as Spanguli, but he's out of Chicago. You could also watch Wolfman Max Killer Drive-In, I believe he's on Retro TV, yes. On Retro TV, right. Uh, locally, we've got a show called Creepy Coffee Movie Time. That's in its <laughs> sixth season. And it's it. just now getting picked up in syndication in other places. As a matter of fact, it just got picked up in Peoria, Illinois, so the drunken zombie guys will be watching that show. <laughs> oh, wow. You've got a show out of Buffalo, New York called Offbeat Cinema. And plus, Mr. Lobo's Cinema Insomnia has been syndicated all around. So you've got it creeping back into TV, but the horror host tradition never really stopped. What it did was move to the internet. Ah, okay. The reason for that was a great horror host out of, I believe, Washington, D.C. Uh, Count Gore Duvall. Count Gore Duvall. Absolutely. He is the man that he led the charge from TV to the internet. As he tells the story, his show was doing fantastically well for quite a few years. Then the station he worked at pulled him off the show to do some other things and said, oh, you'll be back, you'll be back, we'll bring back the show. Years later, they didn't bring back the show. The station got bought up by a corporate entity, started laying people off, so he left. And one day, he decided to look up Count Gordeval on the Internet. And everything he saw was ex-horror host Count Gordeval. And he just said, I'm ex-nothing. <laughs> he got the idea of going to the Internet. So he started a show on the Internet. He was the first one to start doing his show on the Internet. He kind of led the charge away from TV to the Internet. And it was brilliant because it led to this camaraderie of horror hosts. Horror hosts on the Internet and in podcasting and various things, you're not competing for an audience during the same time slot. Mm, yeah. There's really no competition. I mean, you're competing for, I guess you could say, attention, whatever, but you can watch Gordeval, you can catch Wolfman Max show, you can catch all of these, you can catch the stuff that I'm doing. You can catch all these things whenever you want. Well, to me, that's the brilliant thing about the internet. People complain about it so much, but you gotta admit that for one thing, it's a way of keeping these traditions that we grew up alive, mm -hmm. and it's providing a new outlet for people to discover them who would never discover them any other way. They say, oh my god, this is great stuff. That's right. But that being said, a lot of them are coming back. Elvira, right. her show is in syndication for a while. She was producing brand new shows. She's off now and I'm not quite sure what the deal is. I don't yeah. think she got cancelled. I think she voluntarily stopped and is going to be doing new seasons. I'm not quite sure what the deal is with her. Right. There was a time when she was the only person in broadcast carrying oh. this thing on her back. That's right. Yeah, she was the only one. And even her show lasted I want to say three, four years. Then she went on to be a spokesman and do <laughs> movies and do other things. Too. Right, right. She started showing up in the main Right. So she was right. showing up on The Tonight Show. Okay, so now that we've got your background, we know who you are, we right. know where you come from, we know your dealio. Because this is a right. podcast about movies, Absolutely. what are some of your favorite movies? It depends on what day you ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> I love asking yeah. movie fans what movies do they like, because then all of a sudden they all turn inarticulate. Yeah. They go, <laughs> 
Well, at least thank you for not asking me my favorite film, because that's almost impossible. Right. Oh, yeah. And again, it depends on what day you're asking the question. I love the original Universal films, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman. In fact, I think we can pull aside the curtain a bit and say that we've already asked Lord Bloodrot to come back at a future date, because we've been promising this for so long, do the Universal Monster movies with us. Love it. We're finally going to get that started, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. So you figure sometime early next year we'll start doing that. We promise, guys. I know we've been promising this for two years. Because <laughs> I actually, while I was waiting for Tom to come over, yeah. I actually watched the original Dracula. And this is the first time I've seen it in like about ten yeah. years, really. And I saw it on Netflix. This is what surprised me the most. How remarkably short it is. Yeah, yeah, the same thing with Frankenstein uh, and Bride of Frankenstein. They're less than an hour and 15 minutes. Right, something like that, yeah. I mean, I said, wow, this thing was over, and it was moving, though. It was yeah. clicking oh. right along. That's right. Earlier this year at the Valve Theater, I did a tribute show, an 80th anniversary. This is the 80th anniversary of both of those movies, Dracula and Frankenstein. They both came out in the same year, and we showed the original Dracula and the original Frankenstein in this old kind of pocket movie palace at the Valve Theater, mm-hmm. and it was great show. Now, let me ask you, how do you weigh in on the Spanish Dracula question? Uh, Director-wise, as far as the direction goes, it's actually more artful. It's a slightly better film in that respect. The acting is below the acting you get in Lugosi's Dracula. Now, let me clarify this for people that might not know. At the same time that the Bella Lugosi Dracula is being filmed, there was a Spanish version that was filmed on the the same set during the day Todd Browning was directing Dracula with Lugosi and Edward Norton and all the Edward Edward Sloan right uh huh why did I say Edward Norton I don't know that would be funny Edward Everett Sloan and all of them. Mm-hmm. Then they would go home and then would come in the Spanish crew and they right. would shoot throughout the night. The night, right. That's right, yeah. Paul Browning, I love the film, love Lugosi's Dracula, but it's a bit stagey. Yeah. It's almost as if he's filming a stage play, where in the Spanish version you get camera movement. You get a lot more great use of those sets, those huge, cavernous, gothic sets. So direction-wise, better, acting-wise, not so much except for uh, nothing against Dwight Fry. He is everyone's favorite lunatic, right? (laughs) He was in all the classic Universal films, Prince and Frankenstein, obviously Renfield and Dracula. But the actor, and I'll never remember his name, who played the Renfield in the Spanish Dracula really gave that role a lot of depth. He really did. Actually, and interesting enough, the Spanish Dracula is something like 10 minutes longer? Really? I'm going to say it's 10, 15 minutes longer, and most of that are scenes with Renfield developing his character. So that's fairly interesting. I don't know how much uh, Lugosi's ego figured into that. (laughs) 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 He was pretty well known to have a pretty pretty huge ego. I love both films, and of course the Lugosi classic is the classic, Mm. but the Spanish film, if you haven't seen it, why it. It's subtitled, obviously, but right. watch it. It's a, it's a great film. It's a great take on the Dracula story. Well, we'll be covering both in depth when we do the Dracula segment of that series, since we're, we're following the Universal Legends box sets for the chronology. So, yeah, so we'll be covering both versions fully. Right. What did you think about, because recently we had the attempt where Universal was going to do all of their classic yeah. monster movies. We had the Wolfman. Well, which, they've been trying to do that for years. Which didn't take off so well. Yeah. Even though I saw it, I liked it myself. I liked it a lot. 
I thought it was a little bit maybe too much masterpiece theater. It was mm-hmm. like a Merchant Ivory yeah. made a horror movie, but it was good. I liked it. I didn't see why anybody didn't enjoy it, especially the guy who directed the magnificent Captain America we yeah. just had. He directed this Joe Johnson, up, and he did a great job. What's your take on that? Why do you think that people didn't embrace the new Wolfman? I don't know because I went and saw it twice. I loved mm-hmm. it. I got everything I wanted out of a Wolfman movie from that version. But if you've got the Blu-ray, watch not the theatrical version, but the I guess it's called the director's cut. Right? Yeah, it's way better. There's a lot more character development in there. In the theatrical version, you're kind of thrown in to it very quickly, and you don't understand Larry Talbot's kind of weird relationship with his father, and you don't get that. And the director's cut is explained much, much better. So definitely see that film, but I don't know. I love the Wolfman. I know what I wanted out of a Wolfman film, and definitely bloodier than any of the other universal yeah. takes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. But it wasn't gratuitous, though. No, not at all. It wasn't gratuitous. I don't know. I don't know why it didn't take off. Yeah, the, the direction was a bit muddled, but what do you want out of a Wolfman movie? Yeah. Is there a guy? Does he turn into a wolf? Does he beat people up? That's what I want from a Wolfman movie. You want to see a guy turn into a wolf and okay. beat people up? And eat people. Yeah, okay. Right. I enjoyed it. And there is still talk that they're going to be doing more of the Universal films. I heard that there's possibly a, a reboot, very popular term today, of the Wolfman. They're going to do another Wolfman movie. They're going to do a Frankenstein. Film. Every time I hear that word reboot, it brings a chill up my spine now. Yeah, because I think that the first time we heard the term reboot was Bert's Planet of the Apes, was it not? Yeah, yeah. Bert's that's, Planet yeah, of the Apes. That's reason enough to get it chill up your spine when you hear it. Which that. is why, like, okay, I just saw yesterday, as of this recording, the new thing. And I wondered if they went out of their way not to say it was a reboot, even though it obviously was. I haven't seen it, but yeah. I, is it supposed to be a prequel? The funny thing is is that if you take out a section that plays through the, the end credits, you wouldn't know it. Oh. You really wouldn't know it. There are... Because um, this is supposed to take place on the Norwegian base. The Thule Station, yeah. Right, that they find at the beginning of the John Carpenter, where all the crap starts. It's really so weird. Like, they make a big deal about this takes place in 1982. Are they Norwegian? They are Norwegian. Are they Nor- okay. Do they speak all, Norwegian or do they speak English? Many of them do speak Norwegian, yes. Oh, okay. Although, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who was in there, I guess, because they wanted a hot brunette. Because they figured the one thing that John Carpenter's version was missing was a hot brunette. But that was the brilliance of John Carpenter's yeah. version. There was no reason for a hot brunette to be there. Yeah. There was no reason for any woman to be there. I digress. It's weird because they make these kind of nods to the fact that it's supposed to be a prequel. And the title sequence at the very beginning of the film, and the fact that Mary Elizabeth Winstead is listening to men at work on her headphones before she's recruited for this job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But you take out those things and the very end sequence, which seems very tacked on, and there's no reason it should be a prequel. It's obvious they wanted to make it a sequel. Okay. Um, they're trying to have it both ways. Though. Yeah. Right. They were yeah, I was about to say that. Had the cake you needed to. But it's kind of sad that we're living in a time now where so much is taken out because of the studios feel that people don't have the patience to go through character building and stuff like that. Yeah, the audiences today are looked at by Hollywood almost with contempt. That's basically chimps. Yeah, exactly. This is especially true with horror and science fiction fans. One of my big pet peeves, and I'll hear fans say this all the time, Oh, did you see the trailer for such and such? That looks like a piece of crap. I'm going to go see it. That looks like (laughs) a 
This is something that if you listen to our show, you know Derek and I keep saying. The way your vote counts is with your dollar. Yes. That's all Hollywood is interested in, period. They are in the money-making business. That's it. That's all the executives at any of these studios care about. So if people are going to shell out money on an opening weekend to see a movie that looks like crap from the trailers, why shouldn't they keep making crap? They're making money. Do you agree with something that Derek and I have put forth in previous episodes, that many of the things that are presented as science fiction and horror movies these days are really action movies playing dress-up? Yeah, playing dress-up, yeah. Yeah, definitely. For me, that's more true of science fiction. Mm -hmm. The feeling is if they throw a bit of slightly advanced technology and then have guys run around shooting and blowing things up, that's science fiction. And it's not, really. Science fiction, to me, is something like 2001, or something like Planet of the Apes, which, which would have action elements to it, but still, at its heart, had a brain. Or Gattaca. Uh, I tell people, if you want the best recent example that came out in the last ten years or so, Gattaca, to me, that's science I mean, fiction. It is Existence. Po- right. That's science fiction. It is possible yeah. to have action in science fiction. District 9 had action. Right. But it was a science fiction film. But it was a science film. fiction film, yeah, primarily. Go that just happened to have action. Robocop. Great science fiction element to that. And that story, yeah, a lot of shooting. It brings up a lot of action to it. But at the heart of it is, what is a human being? Is Murphy human or is he just now a machine that was the heart of that story so that is a science fiction premise with action in it whereas today you get primarily an action film with a sprinkling of cyber technology in it let me give you the worst representation of that that i just saw the other day and i don't ask me why i watched it i was bored i didn't have anything else to do gamer i never saw it listen don't waste your time. <laughs> okay. But let me ask you this real quick. Do you think that we're going through a horror slump now in Hollywood? That there's a horror uh, slump? Because we really haven't had a real horror movie. I'm not counting the human centipede. Yeah. Part two. <laughs> the last big breakthrough horror hit we had was Paranormal Activity three years ago. Yeah. What was the last original horror film? Maybe it was Paranormal uh, yeah. uh, Activity. Paranormal activity, let me say this for those of you who claim it was such a frightening movie. No, it wasn't. Two people in a house bickering is called a marriage. It's not called horror. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it, it, it worked. Really? Oh, yeah. For I, me, I, it worked. I'll tell you something else. I, because I listen to a bunch of horror podcasts, mm-hmm. knew all the twists and turns that mm-hmm. were coming up. I knew the scares that were coming up. I watched that movie here at home on my DVD player. Right. And it scared me. Yeah, I found that movie scary. But that's just me because yeah. I am a real sucker for this kind of shaky cam found footage. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. See, me, the only one I really liked was the monster movie. Oh, Cloverfield. Cloverfield. Cloverfield, right. Oh, yeah. Now, I love that because there was a reason for yeah. the shaky cam. But stuff like the Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity and the other one where the people are in the middle of the water and they get left behind. Oh, them. oh, oh, I know, with the sharks. Yeah, with the sharks. Yeah, stuff like that. I don't know. No, 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 no. Let me ask you, how, I have no idea. I'm going to be 48 years old. How old are you guys? Me? I'll be 53 this coming February. And I'm 47. So we're pretty much of a peer group. You are. Okay. Because I was going to say, well, apparently I'm totally wrong then. But I was going to say, <laughs> it's a generational thing because growing up, when you saw anything that looked like news footage, it was like, oh, shit, this is real. Right. This is going on. And I think that that was the initial genius of Blair Witch Project and a film that preceded 
Blair Witch Project called The Last Broadcast. Right. Now, that was brilliant. And did you love that? I, I love that. I've seen The Last Broadcast. That was brilliant now. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. But I don't know. See, I guess it's a cultural thing because paranormal activity, and that's why I can't get into this new series that just started, American Horror Story. I've seen it, and I sit there, and all I can keep saying is, just get out of the house. It's very (laughs) simple to me. Leave the damn house. Although I think one of the clever (laughs) things about the first paranormal activity is they establish it's not the house that's the problem, but Katie. Right, I'll give you that, yeah. It goes back to the old Richard Pryor line. Right. (laughs) Yeah, what a nice, what a nice house well, we yeah. just bought for almost nothing. Get out! Pity we can't stay here. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you leave the house. Is the house haunted? You leave the house. That's not to say I don't love haunted house movies yeah. because. Some of my favorite movies, like The Legend of Hell House, right. Brilliant, oh, yeah. The Haunting, The Shining, I love it. But see, in those movies, they have a reason why they can't leave the house. Give me a reason why you can't leave the house. Then I'm with you mm-hmm. through the whole thing. But if you just, uh, well, it's haunted. Wouldn't it be fun to just stay in a haunted house? No, it's not. The <laughs> reason why Paranormal Activity didn't work for me is because I saw it in a near-empty movie theater. It seemed to me, from watching it, that that's a movie that works when you can feed off of the energy of the other people. In an audience, yeah. In an audience. I think that's what it was, too. I pushed it by myself. Okay. <laughs> and it worked for me. Listen, if it worked for you, yeah. That's the beautiful thing that I love about movies and TV. Two people can watch the same exact right. movies and have oh, two yeah. completely different reactions to it. That's right. And come away with two totally separate things. Me, Paranormal Activity, I sat there and I watched it with a bunch of other people. And they were jumping at the appropriate things. And I'm sitting yeah. there, well, that could be the toilet flushing. Why are you going <laughs> to jump every time you hear a noise in the house? One of the things that kind of bothered me was the way that whenever you heard the air conditioner start, you knew that, oh, okay, something scary is about to happen. Now, this one that's coming up, this is a completely fictional story, right? Because this is the third one that's coming up. This is the third one. It's supposed to be the origin story, if you will. Oh, okay. With Katie and her sister. Because the second one was about her sister. So the third one is about Katie and her sister as kids and what brought the demon to there. Oh, okay. And oddly enough, it's directed by the crew that did this film, Catfish, which a lot of people got into a kerfuffle about because they disputed that it was a documentary. Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard a lot about it. Everybody said, oh, it's really good, but yeah, it's supposed to be a documentary, but they say, no, it's not really. I haven't seen Paranormal Activity 2. I saw the trailers for the trailers, but it already seems to be that they're becoming really formulaic. And this goes back to your question about, are we in a slump in horror films? Yeah. And I think that franchises are the main reason. (laughs) Because the subsequent films in a franchise are usually never as good as the first one. And all they're trying to do is rehash a formula that worked once. I don't know if I'm going to upset a lot of people for this, but the biggest offender to me in that class is Saw. Oh, yeah. You'll get no complaints from here on this end. In fact, if you've ever heard one of our sister podcasts, Earth2.net, the show, Michael David Sisson has a particular place in hell for all the people involved in the Saw series. Now, I actually did like the first one. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, but... But by the time you get to the last one, they should have a diagram that comes with it that you right. can unfold and hold up and you can draw the lines to connect all the characters. Jigsaw almost becomes that character that Steve Buscemi played in Billy Madison where he's got the list of people that pissed me off 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. It just gets so convoluted, and it flashes back to things that happened in other yeah. movies, and then you find out that people were involved in the game. It was, uh, blah, that and Hostel. Those represent... Never saw it? Don't waste your time. Yeah. I never saw it because Saw 1 got the bad rap, which it never was, of being torture porn. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. The way I describe the first Saw movie is a longer and bloodier than usual episode of The Twilight Zone. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. That's the way I looked at that film. As a matter of fact, I saw Saw 1 after Saw 2 Mm. had been released. I was traveling for work and I, I was in a hotel room and Saw came on. I was like, oh, I'm meaning to see this. So I watched it, and by the end of that movie, I'm standing up in a hotel room by myself with my jaw on the floor. Yeah. Like, oh, God, this is an amazing film. And then my very next reaction was, how dare they make a sequel? Yeah. <laughs> now, they make a sequel to this. This is a perfect little story. It right. doesn't need to go any further than this uh, 90 minutes or two hours or whatever it, it was. Right. You it go doesn't need to go on. Because and it went on to what? How many song movies have been uh, Six. They were going to do a seventh, but The Poor <laughs> Returns. Right. Poor Reports, for that matter, too. The Poor Returns from Six. So it made no goddamn money. money so they decided <laughs> to put Saw on the shelf. It goes um, right back to it. goes right back to what I said. Hollywood's in the yeah. business of making money, and they'll turn out crap as long as crap makes money. See, I saw the original Saw in the theaters on Halloween Day. Nice. The year it came out, knowing nothing about the film, only knowing it was a horror movie, I wanted to see a horror movie on Halloween. And and the beauty of that film is it builds up to that one image at the very end yeah, of yeah. Jigsaw rising up and your whole brain just goes topsy-turvy. That's the payoff. Listen, I'm with you, Lord Black. My jaw was like, holy, I was like, what? You, know, you should have heard the collective gasp in that theater when he started rising up. And I've only seen like maybe two of the other sequels, but out of the ones that I saw, none of them had an ending that came anywhere near the impact that that one did. And I think it's kind of colored the careers of Juan and Lama, the filmmakers who Get created the first saw. I'll take wow. your, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'll take your word In for that, it. they got lumped together with the Hostels and the Touristas and all these films, because the next film they do after that is Dead Silence, which is a ghost story. Mm-hmm. And then they did Death Sentence, the Kevin Bacon revenge movie. Right. But everybody thinks of them just as these gruesome torture porn guys. I agree with our esteemed guest that... It wasn't torture point. And people forget, the original store had a pretty prestigious cast. We yeah. had Carrie Ellis in there, and we had Danny Glover. Carrie Ellis, before he got so much plastic surgery, he turned into Chucky. You just had to say that, didn't you? Yeah, isn't that weird? It's... <laughs> Oh, my Lord. <laughs> I saw him in the Wonder Woman pilot, and everything is so tight in his face now. Mm-hmm. It's sad. Wow. The thing with Saw, too, is that its bad rap to me uh, for being torture porn didn't come from the movie itself. It came from the promotions. You had those posters with the sawed-off limbs. So people said, oh, my God, I'm not... I'm, I'm and what's-her-name in the gruesome jaw shredding yeah, device? Yeah, the jaw shredding yeah, device. Mask, yeah, exactly. Right. And then we had the disastrous reboot of The Nightmare on Elm oh. Street. That went nowhere, right? Uh-oh. Platinum yeah. Dunes. Don't get me started on Platinum Dunes. Right, yeah. Reboots and sequels, man. I mean, that, that's what we're getting. I was actually looking forward to The Nightmare on Elm Street once I heard that, not, oh my God, I almost said Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> well, it was Billy Bob Thornton. Billy Ray Cyrus would be very interesting. Yes, it would. Now, see, I'd pay to see Country that. Western Freddy. Yeah, there you go. Who played the new Freddy? Jackie Earl Haley. Jackie Earl Haley. Hey. 
Jack, I knew it was a three-name thing. Jackie Earl Haley, because I loved him in Watchmen. And as Derek and I have said many times, he was the best thing in a show that we loved the first season of but hated the second season of, The Human Target. Okay, there you go. He's a hell of an actor. Yeah. He's a hell of an actor. And I thought after seeing him play Rorschach and Watchmen that he was going to be really interesting. And he's actually the best thing about the movie. The makeup itself is questionable, and the story is just it. Oh, yeah, the story's just complete, total, utter garbage. He, in and of himself, didn't do too bad a job, really. His acting in it was fairly good, but everything else around him, unfortunately, I think dragged the whole thing down. Yeah, I watched it, and I said, okay, well, I've seen it. I'm going back to my original <laughs> one. I'll, yeah. stick with, I'll, I'll stick on Halloween. I'll be watching my two favorite yeah, exactly. ones: the first one and the, and the Dream Warriors. <laughs> and the thing that, of course, that Jackie Earl Haley was a friend of Robert England and was very respectful. I think well, he when did. he approached it, Johnny Depp tells the yeah. famous story about how when he went to audition for it, Jackie Earl Haley came with him and he tried out for the role of Freddy yeah. way back then. He didn't get it, of mm, course, right. but he was familiar with the character, having tried out for mm-hmm. it. And when they was going to do the remake, they came to him. And they said, "Listen, you want to try." for it because of course he was hot from the human target right. and, 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 Watchmen, and yeah. Watchmen yeah he was the best thing in that movie unfortunately he couldn't say it <laughs> I'm really sorry to see well, it seems like he's because yeah. I haven't seen him since the human target and, unfortunately and, correct me if I'm wrong Insidious didn't do very well in the box office did it I didn't see it. Okay. <laughs> Instead of who? Insidious. That was Juan and Lamel's next film. It was like a possession movie. No, it was a demon possession movie. And apparently, a lot of the reviews said it was really good. But I guess because it have a two connected to it, or a five, or whatever. I heard that movie, The Last Exorcism, did pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you know why he's doing that, right? Well, you know, of course, first off, who's connected to that film? I know, Tom. Kate, that guy. Yeah, I know. You just won't let it go, will you? <laughs> hate that guy. <laughs> we won't mention his name. And it's a shame because I do like the horror genre, even though I rag on it a yeah. lot because of the inconsistencies of the plot, the stupidities of the character. But when it's done right, it's something transcendental to me. There are movies to this day that I still watch them and I say, oh my God, and even though you know it's a movie, it still gets you. Here's one of my favorite ones. Now, the first Exorcist, I saw that and yeah. I said, eh, okay, it's cool. I actually like. The third one, better than all of them. A lot of people love that film. That was a damn good film. I haven't seen it in years. Gotta watch that one. Neither am I, but I'm gonna watch it this Halloween because I love the third one. The third one to me is brilliant. This opens up something. We've been ragging a lot about sequels and reboots. Okay. Mm -hmm. What are your choices for horror sequels that did work or horror reboots that did work? Dream Warriors. I would like, for example, the Chuck Russell version of The Blob. Yeah. Worked really, really well. Yeah. That was good. I agree with you about Dream Warriors. That was yeah. That was hell of a film. I enjoyed that. I always go back to the old school stuff. Bride of Frankenstein. Oh yeah, well of course yeah. To me, it's almost fair to call Bride of Frankenstein a sequel because to me, it's just like the second part of Frankenstein. Yeah. Really, it just continues straight on. If you watch them back to back, it's like watching one whole complete movie, really. As opposed okay. to the third film, so there's a, a separation of time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can actually watch all of the Frankenstein movies of the Universal Era back-to-back, and it does kind of tell a story, but it gets fairly ludicrous, because yeah. when did Henry Frankenstein have all these kids? Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> Henry Frankenstein was a bit of a horn dog. <laughs> I know, exactly. Well, go to his fifth, his fifth son, Ludwig. Where the hell did he go? Yeah, where did he oh go? Gosh. Well, wait a minute. When you were stitching together all these monsters, when did you have time to make kids? Let's put it this way. He had a lot of mates. This is why we didn't see Mrs. 
Frankenstein right. too much. She was too busy pushing up these kids yes. one after another. Oh my God! And apparently, another part of the castle uh, pushing out the kids. Oh my God! Ludwig and Wolf and, well, and oh, the, yeah, and Nathan and Leroy, <laughs> Leroy Frankenstein. <laughs> Hey, hey, I'd be Leroy Frankenstein. It was a big family. <laughs> that's the Brooklyn oh, branch. No, no. See, but that's the guy who created Blackenstein. And there you, there go. you go. The black sheep of the family they don't talk about. <laughs> well, who's that in the picture? Oh, Leroy Frankenstein. We don't talk about him too much. We don't like to speak of him very much. <laughs> well, hey, back to reboots, Blackula. Remember Blackula? Oh, yeah. yeah. Damn good vampire film all on its own, man. I love that movie. It is. He was like, oh, isn't that corny? I said, well, have you ever watched it? No. Yeah. Sit down and watch it. Granted, a lot of the black exploitation horror movies are pretty silly. But then you get something like, you and I have talked about this a number of times, Sugar Hill. Which to oh. me is more like a superhero movie, actually. Because yeah. <laughs> every time at night when she becomes yeah. the voodoo queen, she's got that outfit on yeah. and the afro and all. Oh, That's man. right. That's right. John Pedro Colley is Baron Zombie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I am the king of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Dawn of the Dead remake that Zack Snyder did, I thought, worked. It's one of those films where it's, I think it worked really well, but it actually maybe got a black mark because it was called Dawn of the Dead. I thought it was great. That's a great yeah. zombie Actually, out of that whole thing, is there really like a bad zombie movie? Is there one that you really don't like? Quarantine. Okay, fair enough. I didn't see Quarantine. The zombie, yeah, there is. What was the title of that? Not, not King of the Zombies, that's an old, old film. Emperor of the Zombies? It was this really crap film where this guy was supposed to be some evil sorcerer zombie who created the zombie apocalypse all on his own, and they had to hunt him down. And Tom Savini was in it. He had a small role in it. It was a low-budget piece of crap that I Look, just really... Tom Savini appeared in Absence of Light, so pretty much I get the impression if you give him a pack of smokes, he'll appear in anything. Oh, pretty much. Pretty much. Have you actually... Have you seen Absence of Light? No, I... I, I oh, my... It's... One of those legendarily bad movies that was obviously put together by somebody who had more ego than talent. Mm. <laughs> Much like this podcast. <laughs> it's shot on video. It is totally and absolutely garbled. It's one of these movies where they apparently somehow press ganged a bunch of people at a convention. Really? To come in and do five lines each. <laughs> they don't actually have them do the scenes. They just have them do the lines mm -hmm. and then intercut the actors doing the other lines. Okay. So you have like Tom Savini and Carolyn Monroe, who was that that period in her life when she looked like she ate herself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Tony Todd. Great Tony Todd. And it, it's about two black ops guys, and there's a war between two covert op organizations, and you, you wonder how somebody could be so deluded to think this is great art. Okay, well now, this brings me to one of my favorite stuff, okay. which is bad movies. Quote, unquote. Uh, Bad movies. I love bad movies. Oh, me too. General, me too. Because to me, the only thing that makes a movie bad is if a movie is boring. That's yeah. Bad. Get a reaction out of me. That's what I ask of it. Exactly. But if you can sit through a movie and you're entertained either by laughing at it or just marveling at what the hell were they thinking <laughs> or riding along with it, despite really terrible acting, terrible directing, terrible whatever, then that's not a bad movie. Plan 9 from Outer Space, perfect example of that. Everything in that movie is ridiculous. Well, I mean, the Edwards Ovier as a whole, you can't deny that two things. One, they're bad, and two, they're entertaining because 
everybody on that set looks like they're having a ball. And they're dead serious about what they're doing. Yeah. They're not winking and saying, well, we know what's crazy. They look like they're really glad to be in this Which is one of the reasons why I like the Tim Burton uh, biopic, because it drives home the fact, something that you and I have said on this show a couple of times, Mm. nobody wakes up in in the morning and says, I'm going to go to work and make the worst fucking movie right. ever made. Right. And make it That's right. That's right. Unless, of course, you work for Troma. Okay. <laughs> True. <laughs> Even Yui Bowl doesn't get yeah. up and say, yeah. okay, I may only use the first draft of any script somebody hands me, but I'm going to make a good movie. Yeah. Absolutely right. But the big difference, I think, between someone like Ed Wood and even Uwe Bowl, I don't get this feeling from any of his crap fests, is yeah. that Ed Wood absolutely loved what he was doing. When he was on the set and he was behind the camera, he didn't want to be anywhere else. That was his love and his passion. And you feel that through all of Ed Wood's films, I think. Whereas a lot of things that go straight to video, straight to DVD, even the ones that you can watch and laugh at and have a good time with, campy, you don't get that feeling of, wow, these people really gave a damn about what they were doing. These these people are having a great time. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Uwe Boll, believe it or not, I actually found a good movie he directed. Oh, what's this? I try to think of the name, but for like the first half of the movie, it's a straight Vietnam War movie. Oh, the Tunnel Rats? Right, Tunnel Rats. Tunnel Rats. Okay. Tunnel Rats is a holy shit. It makes me want to choke the man because I'm saying, this is the stuff you're capable yeah. of doing and you waste your time making crap? No, really. No, no, no. no. I, I understand completely. Lord, Lord Rock, t- let me tell you something. You got to see this movie, Tunnel Rats. Michael Perret is in it. Right. Half of it is a straight Vietnam War movie, and then uh-huh. in the second half, what happens is that these soldiers, these inexperienced tunnel rats, right. get trapped underneath the ground with the Vietnamese soldiers who know what they're doing. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sounds intriguing. That sounds mm-hmm. good. Is Uwe Boll? Yes. Yeah. Uwe, yeah. Wow. And why does he do all the other stuff that he does? <laughs> <laughs> to make money? To make money. Yeah, goes back to paper crap you're going to get. To crap. make money. I was watching Tales from the Script. Right. It's a movie, if you haven't seen it, where it's like 30 script writers. They right. talk about their experience in Hollywood. And the woman who wrote the script for Blood Rain, mm-hmm. she said she was horrified when she finally went to see the movie because she sent in the script and she thought that Uwe Boll was going to send it back with the changes. Yeah, because she said herself, it was a crap script. It was very rough. (laughs) She said... He filmed the damn script. He said he wasn't supposed to film that. It was just the first draft. And she said, she called, well, what did you do? He said, I went ahead and filmed it. I didn't care. Oh, my... (laughs) He's honest. You got to I mean, even go so far as to say that there was that crew of filmmakers from the 80s. Fred Olin Ray. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And Jim Wynarski, who did not make good movies that usually didn't make a lick of sense, but they were at least people who were passionate about making movies and were having fun. And it came off to an extent, in the movies that came out. You're right. And it made the film fun. It made yeah. the film fun to watch. And I think that, that was kind of utmost in their minds is, let's, let's make this film a fun experience. They're not after technical expertise or storylines that make you really think or deep character development. Just something fun to watch. There's nothing wrong with a movie just being entertaining and nothing else. Right. Just like, you know, just a popcorn muncher. There's nothing wrong right. with that. I keep telling people who says, oh, well, that's movie. Oh, I don't want to see that. That's so corny. Well, first of all, these people never figured that 50 years from now we still right. be watching these things. Well, there is that, remember, that's, unfortunately, there is that cultural zeitgeist that's going on now 
couple generations down from our generation. Mm-hmm. That they don't want to see anything before 20 years before they were born. Right. Oh. They don't want to see anything before 1980. They don't want to see anything before 1990. Which, first off, is giving people permission to do things like that Straw Dogs remake, which you know I can't uh, get me all grumbly and angry oh, again. Oh, let me tell you, I don't usually feel my age, yep. but I felt my age the other day when I was talking to mm-hmm. one of them, my younger cousins, and they were talking about Footloose, and I was saying, oh, yeah, well, that's a remake of, you mean they made this before? Yeah. <laughs> that, okay, that one boggles my mind because Footloose, to me, is the most empty movie in the world. Have you ever seen <laughs> Footloose? A kid wants to dance. Have you ever seen Footloose? Yes, I have seen Footloose, and I still consider it to be one of the most empty movies in the world. Well, of course it is. It's a brain-dead movie. A kid wants to dance. Yeah. This guy who runs the town doesn't want him to dance. Right. He dances. Yeah. The end. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it got remade. Yes. Yeah, but it is what it is. I appreciate a movie when it knows this is what it's trying to do, and that's all it's trying to do. It's not trying to be going with the wind. It's like you said. Kid comes to town. This man don't want him to dance. He wanted dances. He dances. Whole town dances. The yeah. end. <laughs> You're talking about feeling your age. Yes. Man, I was in Disneyland a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. right after the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie came out. Yeah. yeah. And there were two teenagers walking by the ride, Pirates of the Caribbean. And one of them looked over and said, oh, look, they built a ride around the movie. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I just shook my hands like, oh, Man, that's just not just a question of age. That's a question of just cultural ignorance. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I remember distinctly when I was a kid begging my parents, because remember they had the Wonderful World of Disney on Sunday nights, Mm -hmm. and they had a whole show about the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And I remember being a kid and begging my parents, take me to see this. You guys are probably of the same age. Do you remember the -the glow-in-the-dark Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion model kits that Monogram put out? Whoa. I got it. Wish now we go way back. I buy every single one. Now we go way back. With the stamp back. action, with yep. the rubber thing that they would they would mm-hmm. really press a button and the, the pirate's arm would come yes. up and go. Yes. Most people's understanding of the model building culture begins and ends with the Aurora Monster Kits. Yeah. Yeah. These were slightly after because yeah. Aurora Kits were in the late 60s, early 70s. 70s. These were kind of mid 70s, I think. I think I so. Know. Somewhere around there, yeah. Because Monogram had always tried to do something to compete with the Aurora Monster Kits. Because they also did, if you remember, the ones based around the Warren Magazine stuff. So they had Amparella. Yeah. Uncle Creepy, like the, Cousin yeah. Eerie. And they yeah. had like the Torture Chamber stuff that got pulled because people were appalled by it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Now, those have been reissued. I haven't bought any of the bigger models, but I got the Frankenstein and the Dr. Penalty. Oh, yes. cool. Yeah, those were fun stuff. And that's the whole Monster Kid movement, because that's where I... You guys do, it sounds like. Yeah. And that's where we're from, is like when monsters were really big culturally. And that's the same thing that spawned the monsters and the Adams Family yep. The monster models, monster toys, monster t-shirts, it was everywhere at that time. Was it Coleco who put out the monster maker? Yeah, the little plastic thing. Yeah. That oven and they turn into yep. monster? Yeah, I used to burn the hell out of myself. Like that. <laughs> oh, my parents forbade me to have that because they were afraid I was going to do yeah, something bad yeah. with that. My parents didn't let me have anything electrical or chemical. See, you got to understand, I grew up for a large portion of my life on Jamaica Avenue and 87th Street. Two blocks away was Ruby's of Woodhaven. Mm. Ruby's had two stores, one in Woodhaven proper and one in Ozone Park. And they were like a magician's warehouse. Oh. So they had all sorts of magic tricks and magic illusions. Yeah, paraphernalia. Stuff, yeah. Paraphernalia. 
A lot of costumes, trick cards, and most importantly, the widest selection of monster masks. Wow. In New York City. All the Ben Poe stuff. Everything they could get a hold of. I remember being freaked out because around September, they would take everything out of their windows and they'd put up these wooden shelves. And they would just line up all the monster masks that Mm -hmm. you could get from September to Halloween. And I remember being freaked freaked out by those things as a kid. <laughs> I mean, seriously, because they would have the most gruesome stuff. Like, they would have, like, oh, yeah, yeah. the Ben Post mask that was a replica of the zombie from the Lucia Fulci film. Right, yeah. Oh, See, yeah. they wasn't playing around yeah. back then. <laughs> These masks were not to be fucked with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Rubies, I think, is still around, because I think you can still find... Oh, yeah, it's still... I don't know if they have the store that I used to live next to, but they still have the big warehouse in Ozone Park. Oh, okay. But it's like an institution. I don't know if it's nationwide, but on the East Coast it is. So let me ask you something. I assume that you have your own personal Halloween movie marathon at your house every 31st of October? Well, I usually have movies on. It's usually the Universal Classics or any of the William Castle films, who I'm also a big fan of. Mm. Uh, the Tingler, uh, House on Haunted Hill, Mr. Sardonicus, big fan of William Castle. But now that I'm doing the whole hosting thing, like I usually throw a big Halloween party. Here, yeah. This year, I'm doing it at a friend's house because I've just been just really busy doing stuff. Tonight, I'm going to the Bell Theater. They're doing a big monster show tonight. I'm not hosting it, but I'm helping out with the show. In two weeks, I'm doing. I don't think I ever mentioned we were showing. I'm doing the uh, Halloween spectacular on the 29th with John Stanley. He's going to be a special guest. We're showing Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is playing right now on our television screen as we talk. Ah, there's a coincidence. There you go. Oh, one of the best horror comedies ever made, hands down, I think. I'll put that thing up against Ghostbusters anytime. I love Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Two great films, two fantastic films. So, yeah, I usually will put, well, when I'm handing out candy and checking out the kids' reactions Mm -hmm. to the decorations. Yeah, I'll usually put either Frankenstein, Dracula, or William Castle uh, film on, or Night of the Living Dead, or something like that. That's always playing in the background. Always. I got one more question. Go right ahead. One more topic for us to discuss. Discuss away. We touched upon the idea that, unfortunately, the horror movie business is mired down in sequels and reboots. Sequelitis. Sequelitis. There is such a rich vein of literature out there that is ripe for adapting. Yes. You wake up one morning and some crazy billionaire gives you enough money to make an adaption of any one of those things. What would you do? Probably either at the Mountains of Madness or the mm-hmm. Dubwich Horror. Anything from Lovecraft. Because I think you can do Lovecraft justice. Right. You look at the creature effect that they came up for for this version of the thing, which is just too freaking busy, if you ask me, because it's got claws and tendrils and teeth and everything, but it's like, but that's Lovecraft. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. And in the Hellboy sequel, the nature creature. Oh, the wood god. The wood god, yeah. That's Lovecraft. That is purely Lovecraft. It was repulsive and Mm -hmm. beautiful at the same time. And I'm actually thinking, because, and I think it's a shame that Del Toro, and I respect him as a filmmaker for standing by his guns and saying, well, if you're not going to let me do At the Mountains of Madness as an R-rated movie, I'm not doing it. Given the brilliant visual style this guy's got, 
a Lovecraft movie may be too intense yeah. to, to see if he's going to do an R-rated version. Because you know he's going to pull out all the stops if he does it. So it would be like an actual Lovecraft experience. People would go see it and go insane. <laughs> Quite possibly. Given his visual style, because you just look at stuff like the Hellboy movies. Or Pan's Labyrinth. You know what I would love to see in an adaptation of? It's funny because it looks like it would be ripe for being made into a really kind of down and dirty B-style movie. The Drive-In. The Joe Lansdale novel. I've heard of it, never read it, but I've heard of it. For some bizarre reason, aliens come down and trap the people who are in an all-night monster movie marathon at a drive-in. Oh, we like it. Okay. <laughs> pretty much a lot of Lansdale stuff would be really nice. Like, On the Cadillac Desert with Dead Folks would also be pretty good. That man, I would love to see a version of The Bridge, the John Skipper Inspector apocalyptic novel. Okay. Never heard of it. Okay, but I'll take your word for it. But me, if I had to pick one, yeah. first time I read this book, I said this would be like the ultimate 1950s horror science fiction mm-hmm. biker monster movie. Robert R. McCammon's Stinger. Oh. Which is uh-huh. about a dying Texas town. Right. And what happens is that one alien creature comes to this town and hides in the body of this little 10-year-old girl. And then this other creature called Stinger, which can mm-hmm. inhabit other forms. It's kind of like the thing. And it's like this, mm-hmm. what do you call it? The biotechnical, uh, bioorganic, bioorganic type of life yeah. form. Okay. Yeah. It puts a force field over the whole town. And nobody can get out. Nobody can get in. And it's going around killing people while it's looking for this little yeah. girl. And these two rival biker gangs have to team up to destroy the monster. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, There's I want to see this as a movie. A lot of McCammon stuff. The Wolf's Hour. Oh, man, yeah. First off, The Wolf's Hour would be a great novel to adapt. Plus, it opens up because... It's about a spy who's a werewolf. Who's a werewolf in World War II. So it would open oh, yeah, up, it yeah. would dangle that in front of a studio, go, and they think franchise, and you get the way you would do in yeah. your movie. It's this guy, he's a spy, but we don't find out until a good chunk into the book. He's sent on this mission behind enemy lines. Well, how is he going to pull this off? And it turns out that, yeah, well, the guy happens to be a werewolf at the same time. So you got a werewolf fighting Nazi. What else more do you need? That book you mentioned, Stinger. Yeah. That would be great, made into a movie. I would love to see it in black and white, done as a 1950s film. I love you. You're a genius. Because that's exactly the way that I would do it. I would do it as a 1950s black and white monster movie. Yeah. Look at how Frank Darabont always insists that whenever you put out a DVD set of one of his movies, you get a black and white version. Yeah. They're doing the special edition of The Walking Dead first season. Yeah, yeah. First and probably only season that really will matter. Yeah, it sounds like it. Hope you like the sound of zombies at the door. Is that what they're doing? I've heard rumors that they're going to be kind of heard and not seen. Is that the way they're attacking this? Scene? The way I heard it, and this comes from Darabont himself, he said he was in the meeting and they said to him, do we have to show the zombies? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, wait a minute, you want to do a zombie show but not show the zombies? And they said, yeah. Uh, so, so let me get this straight now. <laughs> you like my show about zombies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you want me to do a second season? Yeah. Without zombies. Yeah, yeah. And in goes movie executive Kermit. Yeah! Yes! The ignorance of the television executives, too, but movie executives, is kind of legendary. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this story, but in the 70s, when the movie The Wiz came out, yeah, mm-hmm. with Michael Jackson and the whole, it was, I don't know if anybody doesn't know out there, but it was 
the black version of The Wizard of Oz. Right. Diana Ross, Michael Mm -hmm. Jackson. Exactly. Movie came out, was a big hit, and some executive, I forgot which executive and from which studio, wrote a memo to everybody and said, hey, this movie The Wiz is a big hit. We should do a white version of it. Oh, God. Or, of course, all those stories about people who were trying to pitch equals to 300. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right. How do you rise to the... Well, actually, the answer is obvious. You make money for the studio. But how do you get anywhere... To me, it doesn't make any sense that you get anywhere in the movie business and know (laughs) nothing about the history... Have you ever read Fortune and Glory? It's a, I think it's like a three-part comic done by Brian Michael Bendis. No, no, I haven't. It's an autobiographical comic about how he was contracted to come to Hollywood to write a script based on his graphic novel, Torso. Okay. Which, okay. which is about the Cleveland Torso murders oh, you're right. that yeah, was investigated yeah. by yes. Elliot Ness when yes. Elliot Ness yeah. first moved to Cleveland to right. be their right. public safety They've been moving out of that for years yeah. now, yeah. He talks about, he has this meeting with the executive and says, okay, I've read the book, I love it, how about we make Elliot Ness younger? Because, of course, they want to get Leonardo DiCaprio. They want to get Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio. And he goes, you do know this is based on historical <laughs> fact, right? <laughs> Why should that get in the way of anything? <laughs> How about we make it so that Elliot Ness is just starting out? Because he wasn't at the time. Mm-hmm. It just amazes me how people want to make things better. To be cast Will Smith as Elliot yeah. Ness. <laughs> A lot of times it fascinates me how one script starts off as one thing and ends up as totally another thing that has nothing in relation to how well, like, for example, how Pretty Woman was originally the script 500, which was a much darker film. That's right. There's one other thing I think I would want to go back, and this is actually something that would get kind of like an adaptation, like a reboot. What's that? And you and I have talked about this, doing a big screen version of Kolchak. Oh, yeah, the nice talker, sure. They tried to reboot the series. It all was terrible. Young, again, young, good-looking guy who had some kind of paranormal... I think the the backstory was his wife was taken away by werewolves. Oh, Jesus. I will tell you exactly how they could have made the show better. What's that? They should have made Gabriel Union Kolchak. <laughs> <laughs> it was obvious that it was Frank Spotnitz who Spotnitz, did this. yeah. The guy from X-Files. And for somebody That's... who professed, remember, because Carter and Spotnitz throughout X-Files said, oh, this is what inspired us to do this series. We love Kolchak. We love Kolchak. For someone right. who professed to love Kolchak, Spotnitz obviously did not get the answer right. You right. know when I knew that the show was crap? When? No fooling. When they went to Kolchak's house. That's oh the, yeah, he was living in that little. That he was living in this futuristic mansion on top yeah. of a mountain with glass walls. And Kolchak should be living in a studio apartment, eating beans out of a can. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. As soon as I saw who was cast for Kolchak, I thought, mm-hmm. No, where's the rumpled white suit? Where's the hat? No, that is not Kolchak. They did. The other get thing it. That, that really bothered me was the fact that Vincenzo not only believed him but supported him. Right. Yeah. That you can't have that. You got this old school reporter, mm-hmm. which I guess you don't have anymore. That's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. But you've got to have this old school kind of gritty reporter who was just getting all this supernatural shit thrown at him and deals with it. Because one of the best things, and I love the way this movie ended, the Night Stalker, you remember, I'm sure you guys know, it ended with not only Kolchak, but Vincenzo getting kicked out of town too. And the end of the 
movie ends with Vincenzo bitching at him about how he got him fired. He got him kicked the out. beauty of the Night Stalker concept <laughs> is that here is this poor schlub who has the secrets of the universe, who has seen things nobody, who knows the answers to things nobody else has ever seen before. But can't prove and a damn thing. Exactly. <laughs> and he is always a Cassandra in his own world. Exactly. I was going to say, he is Cassandra. He's trying to tell people, trying to tell his story, and it's either the powers that be or people's just disbelief in such things that always go up against him. So he's always kind of classed as a lunatic. We have to do a little bit of rework, and we have to make him like a blogger or something. Nah, you know what? Do it as a period piece. Uh, and and right. the big question would be who to cast. William Mason? Actually, that's what... I was thinking Gary Oldman for a second. But William yeah, Macy. Doing it. William Macy. I like that. Because he yeah. has that haunted look on his yeah, face. Yeah, William Macy. I can see him doing it. That would be great. I mean, it would be, be worlds better than what they tried to do. Oh, yeah, yeah. The only reason I watched it was that they had my girl Gabrielle Union was on there. That was it. Other than that, I said, nah, this ain't going away. I said, I'd give it six weeks. I don't even think it lasted. Did it last six weeks? It never even got, because the first seven episodes ended on a cliffhanger. It was seven. They were waiting for the 13-episode pickup. They never got it. So the series ends in the middle of a two-part story. You know, oh, what, you know what used to creep me out what? about the Night Stalker? Even opening credits creeped me out when I was a kid. The way that... Oh, my God. With the typewriter and then the fan stops. And, yeah, like, right. he is, oh. and, and the way that the, that the strings just start building and building and building on the soundtrack. And it starts off so merry yeah. and jiggly. And he's walking in, whistling yeah. and everything. And as he's typing, the office is gradually getting darker and darker. Oh, yeah. man. I can't watch this. Great series. Love that series. I can't watch this. (laughs) But, you know, the the sad thing is, I don't know if such a series could exist anymore because there's such a resistance now to the done-in-one show. Mm. You and I were talking about Prime Suspect. If they had made it into a done-in-one show and not had all the bullshit about... Maria Bello dealing with her fiancé's ex-wife and dealing with all the bullshit about the sexism in the office, which is from 1985, it probably would have been a great show. But there's such an insistence that everything has to have an over-arc now. Everything has to build to a big crescendo. Yeah. Well, I look for the next season. Yeah. I kind of actually miss the one-and-done show, and actually I was hoping, because we've got the two-period piece yeah. that are on now, we've got the Playboy Club, which Sorry, got canceled, one period piece. which got canceled, and we've got Pan Am, which I'm actually hoping, they did pick it up for a few more episodes, okay. I was hoping that the period piece show would actually catch on, if for no other reason then I was hoping that we would get maybe a P.I. series yeah. out of this. which I find been- it hilarious, by the way, because, you know, the, the sing-off episodes were shot during the summer. Right. So I find it hilarious how Nick Lachey is constantly making references to the Playboy Club. Yeah. Somebody should have did a little bit of editing. A little bit of editing. You need yeah. to cut that out. But, uh, yeah, because I think we're about due for the P.I. show to come back on TV. Especially when there are a couple of actors out there I think would make really good P.I.s. Our boy, Mark Valley. Mark Valley would be a great P.I. Mm-hmm. There are a number of these guys out there that would do well in such a format. But right now, it's all about the big overarc. Yeah. Going back to The Night Stalker, that was essentially a horror anthology with mm-hmm. a running character. That's what it was. There was no tie-in other than him and his constant fighting with me. Right. You don't have that. It seems like, well, actually, the last few anthology series to be on TV just didn't seem to work. I mean, these were just pure anthologies. Right. Uh, 
Uh, Fear and itself. Had a few, a, a few good episodes, but the majority of them I felt just didn't work. Some of the things in there were brilliant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant. Cigarette Burns, I thought was a great yeah. episode. I um, love that. I liked, was, just, was it Jennifer, was it called? The first Argento one? Oh, Jennifer, yeah. Actually, do you remember? Because you, you read, like, Creepy and Creepy. Yeah. And Meg. Oh, sure. That story is straight from... Uh, Bruce Jones, yeah. Right, yeah. So that, that was a good one. I enjoyed that one. As a big Larry Cohen fan, I got a rather interesting kick out of Pick Me Up. Seeing him and Michael Moriarty work again. Right. Unfortunately, the anthology TV series, in general, just don't seem to be working. And what was the net? The network tried to do a Masters of Horror type Yeah, it was after two years, whoever it was who was doing Masters of Horror refused to pick it up. Right. So they took it to network, and it became Fear Itself for one season. Okay, that's right, Fear Itself. And that didn't seem to work well at all. (laughs) Oh, now, have any of you guys seen Masters of Science Fiction? No, no, I I haven't. I don't have cable, so... Oh, okay. Usually, the way I see cable shows, or I'm a big aficionado of of British television, is through a a weekly visit from the Internet Fairy, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Masters of Science Fiction was the same idea as Masters of Horror, but obviously the science fiction series, Mm -hmm. I think it only ran, oh, I want to say six episodes, Mm -hmm. and that was it. Each one of those was brilliant. That series worked, and of course it was considered too high, but it was canceled. But it was brilliant. There's a DVD package of them out now, and I've seen all of them except for one. One was never broadcast. It's on the DVD package, and I haven't picked up the package yet. But mm-hmm. each one of those, each story was just, I mean, genuine science fiction. I would compare it to Outer Limits and Twilight Zone. At wow. Yeah. See, this is something that I miss terribly that I know will never come back to the theaters, which is the anthology movie. Yes. Derek and I have talked many, many times, and one of these days we will get around to it. In fact, maybe we'll get... Asylum! Yeah. Maybe yes. we'll get around to... Maybe we'll, we'll see if we can get my friend Brian Higgins, who does the Hamicus podcast for that episode. There you go. And to tie it in with horror hosts, each and every one of those anthologies had a horror host figure or character. Dr. Right. Diablo. Uh, the... Dr. Diablo, yes, exactly. Burgess yeah. Meredith being really purdy mean. The Tales from the Crypt. That was Ralph Richardson. Exactly. Telling these people either how they were going to die or about the rotten things. And even what was the one with the guy that was on the train telling people Oh, that was Dr. Shrek. That was Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. That was oh, the first. Okay. He was the tarot reader. Right. The Peter Cushing right. was the tarot reader who right. told. That was the first Amicus anthology. Mm-hmm. I right. love those things. And I love the fact that if you didn't like the first story, the second story might be to your taste. Yes, exactly. Because I remember when I was a kid, I went back to see Tales from the Crypt at least yeah. two more times just for the ending story right. with the blind men. Oh, yeah. Blind Man's Bluff. Oh, yeah. Right. Although, of course, you mentioned Asylum for a second there. The creepy little robots. Yeah. Those <laughs> things freaked the hell out of me as a kid. Oh, man. That was- Even the really dopey ones like the Monster Club. Okay. Had had a particular that's fun. It yeah, has a particular flavor of its own. One of the things I like about the Monster Club is it gives you these really bizarre musical numbers in between the stories. I don't right. see that. I don't think I've never seen that one in the Monster Club. You know uh, Vincent Price and John Carradine. John Carradine is playing R. Chetwin Hayes. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's looking at his new book in a shop window 
and Vincent Price comes up and says, oh, well, pardon me, I make some sort of stupid excuse and he tries mm-hmm. to bite him and then realizes who he is and says, oh, no, you're my favorite horror writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to take you somewhere. I'd take you somewhere. Mm-hmm. And he takes him to the Monster Club and that's where we learn that. And I can never remember the chart. He shows... Oh. That, oh my god, no, but... Uh, Which ends in the line, and the Shadmok just whistles. Shadmok and Hume Goose yeah. and various, yeah. I'd love to have a poster of that for my wall. Yeah. Uh, Those things had just such a sense of... Of fun. Of fun. You know what I watch all... Here's yeah, another one that freaked the hell out of me as a kid. What? From The House of Drip Blood. Yeah. The one with the little girl who knew voodoo. I've seen this movie, The House of yeah. Drip Blood. Sorry, Christopher sorry. Lee's... Wife dies. Okay. So it's just him. Which doesn't surprise And me. his little daughter <laughs> in the big house that dripped blood. Okay. And he's very, very mean. Okay. And because when his wife died, a little bit of him dies. He doesn't allow anything childish. So his little girl just goes to school and goes back, comes back home and goes to bed. And he gets a nanny. The nanny gets her a doll. The guy throws the doll. Oh. And then we find out that the mother was a witch. Okay, and it runs in the family, so she gets a little voodoo doll, a little voodoo doll, and starts playing on daddy, and daddy mistakes it for a regular doll. Oh shit! Yes, yes, oh, yes. Shit. right. right okay, right. and daddy screws around with the doll. No, daddy goes okay into the fire with you. And this is the House of Drip Blood. That's the House of Drip Blood. I know I've seen that one. I don't know. I'm going to see That's the same that on one Netflix. with John Pertwee as the vampire actor who gets the cloak that turns him into a vampire. dad. Okay, that what I know. Okay. The goofiest looking vampire ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Rod Stewart as a vampire. There you go. You know, right. the, the funny thing about John Pertwee, he never looked right in anything else yeah. outside of Doctor Who. It's Doctor Who, but if I see him in any other movie, he just looks completely goofy. <laughs> exactly. But, was uh... cross-eyed? A, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I think so. Because he was always filmed from the side. He was yeah. very rarely filmed directly head-on. Because mm-hmm. with the, the classic vampire thing on and the fangs just looking cross-eyed <laughs> with the frog kind of thing he has, like... Wow, that's a goofy vampire. Oh, man. Think of it this way. I the remember. victim is too busy laughing. He doesn't notice that you bite him. I remember that. I remember <laughs> that one now. Okay, that one I remember. <laughs> oh. We are going to get around to doing... We should probably resolve to do it next year. What's Definitely that? get around to doing the, our, our history of Amicus. Oh, yeah. That's something else I love. keep saying we're going to do. That is more so than the golden age of monster movies from the 30s and 40s. That's my true passion, Blood Raw. British horror cinema from the 50s to the late 70s. Nice. And Hammer as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Hammer, Amicus, Tigan, all of them. Right. Beautiful. And okay, well, going back to sequels, mm-hmm. the Hammer Frankenstein films. Oh, please. I love them. The, the brilliant conceit of, of the Frankenstein sequels is that the people at Hammer understood that the real monster... Is Frankenstein. Is, is the doctor. Yeah. Yes, exactly what I was going to say. That's it. The monsters are just byproducts of his evil. And he goes through life just creating these creatures and really single-mindedly intent on his research. Doesn't give a damn how many towns are wrecked by yeah. this thing. Well, see, that's the one thing that I love watching Peter Cushing as Frankenstein. Because, okay, you screwed up in the last movie. What do you do in the next one? This time, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's going to work this time. Sure. What's your, okay, what's your favorite Cushing Frankenstein? I don't know which one mine is in terms of just how monstrous he is. Oh, I think it's Curse of Frankenstein because you get the whole backstory okay. of how he is this. Rich, privileged little fucker. That's 
<laughs> anything else around him, but he's brilliant and brings in, I can't remember his name, but the, the tutor. Yeah. The tutor, yeah. The science and becomes kind of a partner with him. But when he starts to back away, Cushing says, I'm going to keep going. I don't give a damn if you're going to help me or not. Curse of Frankenstein, I've got to say, yeah. it was my favorite. And you know what always cracks me up? It never fails to crack me up because the story is told in flashback. Right. Frankenstein is telling this to the priest. And at the end of the movie, his mentor comes in there. So he grabs him and says, tell him. Tell him there was a monster. <laughs> and the mentor just looks at him and says, what monster? Yes. <laughs> yes. And he says, you son of a bitch. Tell him. <laughs> and they drag him away to behave. Now, I think in terms of sheer monstrousness... <laughs> <laughs> the Cushing Dr. Frankenstein from Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Oh, yeah. It's got to top that. First of all, it's the best title. Yeah. Frankenstein oh, Must Be yeah. Destroyed says it all. That's the one where he rapes. The yes, he rapes, a, oh, he rapes his landlady. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Kills her husband and rapes her. But I want to tell you what is the most intriguing one. Yeah. And one where Frankenstein is actually kind of sympathetic. The one where he says, okay, I know what went wrong with all the other monsters. Yeah. They didn't have a soul. So he goes to this remote village, and apparently he's living quite openly as Frankenstein. Because right. people say, hey, Vic, what's going right. on? Hey, how you doing? But they know about his crimes. And he's created this machine that can... I think this is Frankenstein created woman. Yes, that... Isolates the soul. The soul, and he puts the soul in the wrong body. Yeah. And then the woman runs around and starts killing everybody. Right. And, Frank and if I remember correctly, he originally transfers the soul as an act of kindness to yeah, his exact, assistant. Exactly. Because his assistant is in love with Christina. This is what I mean. Say, so he's actually kind of sympathetic in this movie, and they bring him on trial. This town says, okay, Vic, listen, we let you live here, even though you screwed yeah. up. And you, are, are you doing it again? And yeah. he says, no, this is what I did. And I don't I was, understand. What you're saying. Yeah, I was trying to help. I said, wait a minute. They're rattling off all of his accomplishments. Somewhere in between stitching all these monsters together, uh, he had time to get a law degree yeah. because they said, oh, you graduated from the... I said, so wait a minute. He had 18 kids. <laughs> he stitched together nine monsters. Right. He built a machine to capture human souls. And won the Boston Marathon. Yeah. <laughs> he stitched together nine monsters. He found the secret of life. I mean, that's a busy man. Victor Frankenstein's a hell of a guy. So, so you think like when all the he gets to Rick James, the horror board. mad scientists get together for tea. <laughs> yeah, like Doctor Fives going, oh well, I was able to revive myself and I got revenge. It's like uh, I found the secret of life. And yeah, I mean every time everybody else, everybody just shuts up. I mean every year when they go to the mad scientist banquet yeah. and he's sitting there and they're rattling off their comments when he raises a hand in the back. Hey, yo, right here, secret of life. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody says, yeah, well, Victor did it again. But I created a living flesh. Secret of life. Uh, prove the existence of human soul right here. Who's <laughs> yeah. the guy with two thumbs and figured out the secret of the human soul? This guy. <laughs> this is why I love the Peter Cushing Baron Frankenstein. There's a reason why he's so snotty and arrogant. That's the other thing that's great about yeah. his performance is that he is totally supremely confident that what he is doing is in the right. And he's a very physical Frankenstein. Yeah. That's what I like about him, too. He's not afraid to get in there and mix it up. He's a very physical Which is kind of why I'm sort of grateful that the series ended when it did before Cushing got so frail. They only did four, I believe, right? No, let's see, they did Kurt. Frankenstein created woman. Was there a return in there? 
I don't think there was or revenge. revenge. There was curse. Revenge of Frankenstein. There was revenge of Frankenstein. There was Frankenstein must be destroyed. Frankenstein created woman. Right. Frankenstein and the monster from hell. Right. I keep thinking I'm missing one because there's one because there's one that's a direct Frankenstein, but he wasn't in it. Yeah, he wasn't in that one. There was one that was the direct sequel to Curse of Frankenstein because in the it's, beginning of the second one right. we find out that's when he faked his death. Yes. Because they dig up the body mm-hmm. and they find it's a headless body in there. And they, that's you know. the one with, where David Prowse was the monster. Ah, okay. I think. I think so. Yeah. I think that's right. But yeah. But and then I, we get the unfortunate one where Hammer finally broke down and bought the rights to the Jack Pierce makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, they decided to remake Frankenstein as a comedy. Oh, I yeah, that oh, If it wasn't was Peter Cushing, I no, it was no, it was Peter Cushing. I didn't. See. The monster was played by Kiwi Kingston, who was a wrestler. Oh, Kingston. Yeah, and uh, there's deaf mute girl, and there's the one scene that for some reason I always remember when I think of that particular film is the monster wandering around after he's just been revived and falling down a hole. Okay. And I'm like, no, no, this is not what it's meant to be. See, I never saw that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. By the way, I just looked up the Hammer Frankenstein's. It's mm-hmm. Revenge of Frankenstein was the first one, 59. Okay. Revenge of Frankenstein, Evil of Frankenstein. That's the one I'm missing. Evil of Frankenstein. Frankenstein created woman. Frankenstein must be destroyed. The Horror of Frankenstein, which I believe is the one that Cushing wasn't in. I think that's the French one. Right. I believe it was French. I'm not quite sure. And Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, 74. Which is actually a pretty good film. Yeah, yeah, I like it, yeah. But David Prowse is that weird... Monkey monster thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least here in New York, I don't know if it was nationwide, they put that on a double bill with Captain Kronos, which is one of my favorite Hammer films. Ah, nice. Now there's a film I want to see many sequels to. Yeah. It was intended to have many sequels. Mm -hmm. I know that Brian Clemens claimed that he had already written scripts where Cronus met both Dr. Frankenstein and Dracula. Sweet. That would have been Van Helsing done right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. We've mentioned that more than once. Van Helsing. God, oh man. man. If that movie had ended right after the black and white sequence... I would have been satisfied. Remember the opening black and white yeah. scene? Yeah. Movie? There's Dr. Frankenstein and Dracula shows up, and I'm thinking, yeah, okay. Okay. And Frankenstein comes to the top of the thing, or throws the doctor over. Yeah, okay, good. Then, unfortunately, the rest of the movie had to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it just went on and on and on and on. And then the freaking credits is like 20 minutes long. And, yeah. they, and it's like, you please make it stop. That was one of Universal's, we touched upon this earlier, how Universal for the last 10, 15 years has been trying desperately to squeeze some sort of new life into their Universal monster movies. And I think that this was their idea that they were going to do this Van Helsing movie and they were going to be able to break out all the characters and it just did so poorly. Oh yeah. Well see that was their mistake that they made. They should have taken the template that Marvel has proven yeah. it made so successful. Give us one movie about Van Helsing, shows how he grows yeah. up, then the next movie. You have Dracula, then the movie after that you have the right. Red Wolf, then you have Frankenstein. Then you make a final one, grabs it all up where he fights them all at one yeah. time, call it a day, everybody made money, we're all happy. But they were more thinking about, hey, it's Wolverine and that girl from Underworld. Well, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the original Universal films Mm -hmm. did that without a central monster fighter character. Because by the time, it started with Dracula Frankenstein, then they got to the Wolfman, and then Frankenstein meets the Wolfman was the first one was like, okay, let's throw two monsters in there. Mm -hmm. Then after that, the floodgate opened with House of Frankenstein. Let's get everybody in the pool. I do have an affection for those monster rallies, because they're just so goofy. 
Mad Monster Party. <laughs> yes, Mad Monster Party. Yeah, thank, see, I knew you'd appreciate it. Tom doesn't. I, I do. What are you talking about? I haven't seen it in like a cool age. I love Mad Monster Party. <laughs> I love it. But that's the thing about and the Monster Rally movie. And let's not forget Abbott Costello Me right. Friends. Right. Well, it's another Monster Rally movie. Those movies are the ones that really created the kind of world that spawned the Monster Kid. Yeah. They, it was like, okay, you had these characters interacting and then they became kind of the stereotypes that they were within this kind of Transylvania world out of time world that created the fantasies of the monster kid generation. If it wasn't for those monster rally things, we wouldn't have had the monster. Yeah, right. true. Yeah, right. yeah. Like that, you know. I, I love those. The more monsters, the better. They never managed to get the mummy in there, though. They tried. Or the creature. Or the creature. That's yeah, right. That's once right. you take them out of water, what are you else going to do with them? Except oh, deep fry them. Yeah, I mean, in House of Frankenstein, they probably just would have seen him in a tank in the corner. Yeah, or something. yeah. And the yeah. mummy moves too slow to actually be a, right. a threat to. Well, from what I understand, in the original draft of House of Frankenstein, they had the mummy was in it, okay. but it was just too weird. It just didn't work. You have to have something for the character to do. I guess that's why I never was, out of all the classic Universal movie monsters, I never really warmed up to the mummy because, damn, you can just run. It's like Romero age zombies from the first night of The Living Dead. Well, if you're a reasonably good runner, you can stay away from them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was always kind of the outcast. But actually, The Mummy had more sequels than any of the other films. Yeah, this is true. They, well, The Mummy's hand, The Mummy's shroud, uh, The Mummy's ass. I mean, there's just, <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole bunch of them. That was, of course, the black exploitation one, the mummy's ass. The only ass. The only one I really think I liked was the color version that they did. Where remember, was it, they had the showman that had found the tomb and he oh, was bringing it to England. Oh, that was the second. Hammer one. That was the hammer. Yeah, it was the hammer one. The color. first one was the mummy, which is a, a more or less fairly straightforward adaptation. Mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah. Of the first film, because oh, the third one, which is actually an adaptation of the Duel of the Seven Stars, or whatever mm -hmm. that, that that Bram Stoker novel is based on, was called Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Right. With Martine Bestwick acting all sexy and slutty. Ooh. Yes. Nothing Not wrong with that. Not a bad thing. Not at all. Nothing wrong with that. And then, of course, we had in modern times the Indian. Anna Jones light mummy. mummy trilogy. That was Universal, I think, first attempt to revitalize their monsters. Which I think was a brilliant move on their hand mm. to remake it as a kind of Indiana right. Jones kind of thing. Mm. You make the mummy which more is probably of a, what they were making more of a Van Helsing. Yeah. Which is because remember that was the same director, Mark Summers. Right, yeah. So right. that was probably what they were thinking was that making it more of an adventure movie with monsters. Exactly. And unfortunately, it's like, for example, I was watching yesterday when I went to see The Thing, mm -hmm. they had the trailer for Underworld Awakening. Really? With the most generic actress in the world, Kate Beckinsale. They still look in that cow, huh? I was looking at this, and I realized that this was another thing like Legion, like Priest, where it's just, hey, look, it's an adventure movie with monsters. Kate Beckinsale, I admire about her. She seems to have found her niche, and she's comfortable with doing mm -hmm. it. She knows that she's probably never going to win an Academy Award, so she might as well do this while she can. Well, she's also in the awful Mark Wahlberg. It must have been like the Kate Beckinsale trailer package. No. <laughs> because they also showed a really generic-looking Mark Wahlberg action movie called Contraband. Okay. Which is, I'm Mark Wahlberg, I wanted to be in the Born Identity films, so I'm going to be in this instead. Well, he's entitled. He's yeah. done his share of prestigious right. movies lately, so he's entitled to make a, a dumb... But she's in there, but she's the high blonde. Looks even more generic. Yeah. Where will we be without our generic action movies, Tom? I don't know. See? Nothing wrong with a movie just being entertaining. That's fine. You often want more. 
I mean, yeah, you know, I understand. Yeah, it's something like Taken can be a generic action movie, but also give us a little meat to it. The one that he's in now, the one that Jim Moon and I were laughing about, The Gray. I don't understand why everybody finds that so hilarious. It's, it's the sight of Liam Neeson with the broken cocktail bottles looking like Wolverine ready, ready to punch a wolf in the nose. And you don't want to see that? That's just hilarious. <laughs> see, I don't have much of a sense of humor. I looked at it, I said, well, shit, who don't want to see Liam Neeson punching out, punching out wolves? I think it's very interesting, though, that Liam Neeson, the direction his career yeah. has taken, where he's now in a niche where he's making these action-type movies, and he's kind of left behind, I hate saying it, but it's true, the more prestigious type of movies that... Yeah. He broke into, like I watched the other day, yeah. Les Miserables. That was the type of stuff he used to do. But let's He's, not forget, for every Les Miserables, there was something like High Spirits, where he played the horny Irishman in, in a comedy about ghosts. Yeah, but who remembers that, except for you? Me. You know, we'll, see, <laughs> that, we'll see, there we go. But again, a lot of people don't remember him. I remember Liam Neeson way back in the 80s. He made Excalibur. Dark Man, thank you. There you go. Yeah. To me, he's just going back to his roots when he's doing these action-themed movies. Now, now, Unknown wasn't nowhere near Taken. 18, I like 18. Yeah, Unknown obviously wanted to be Taken. Yeah. I just love what Jim Moon wrote when I posted the trailer for that. Did you read this? Probably, but I probably forgot it. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for Ransom, I can tell you I don't have doggy treats. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired... Over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for animals like you. <laughs> I will look for you, I will find you, and I will punch you in the snout. <laughs> Listen, I want to go see I want to see Liam Neeson punch a wolf in the snout. You think you that bad to punch a wolf? See? Damn it. Here's my six dollars. Show me. Come on, all of you. Show me. I'll take you all on. But I like Liam Neeson as the new monster fighter. Right <laughs> on. Yeah. I would pay. I would pay to see Liam Neeson punch Dracula in the snout. <laughs> <laughs> He'd probably be damn convincing while he's doing it too. There you go. I like Liam Neeson. He's cool. I think that was also one of the problems with Van Helsing. Is that I'm sorry, you Jackman at five foot six does not make a convincing monster hunter. No, he made a convincing Wolverine. But yeah, I said, how can he see anything with that big ass floppy hat on? You remember the scene where he's shooting yep. all the arrows around and he's missing? Well, maybe if you take off the damn hat, you could see to aim the damn thing. <laughs> Oh my god. Liam Neeson is a big man. Okay, we got it, you. The hat looks yes. cool, but yeah. take it off when you're trying to see what you're trying to shoot. To be fair, I think Hugh Jackman was the least of the problems that movie. Oh, had. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. The one thing I found intriguing about the movie was the kind of multi religious group that he was from. Mm hmm. Because when they showed that, I thought, oh, okay, they're going to be hunting down monsters from various cultures. Right. So it's like, oh, see, this good, this good. Here's Van Helsing fighting a Rakshasa. Here's Van <laughs> Helsing fighting an Oni. Fighting <laughs> the Chupacabra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, uh, well, uh, once again, here's my six dollars. I want to see that. Liam Mason punching a Chupacabra in the I want to see that. What was that BS at the end with them changing back and forth from werewolves every five seconds? 
absolutely ridiculous. And that was, yeah, when they made him a werewolf, and then he's uh, saved from it, and it's, ah, come on. And if you're going to do that, go all the way. Have him be a werewolf, then get bit by a vampire. So he'll be a human <laughs> werewolf vampire <laughs> hybrid. It'll <laughs> go all the way. They can be a werewolf. Or keep him a werewolf. He's a monster hunter that's a werewolf. All right. Yeah, there you go. Thank oh. you. But at the last minute, what, they give him the antidote or something? Oh, some bull. There's an antidote? I don't know. To being a werewolf. Here's an antidote yeah, yeah. for being a werewolf. Yeah. Death. Yeah, we have an antidote. Yeah, right. He was saved in some contrived, forgot what it was. When they come on the Frankenstein monster, and they're fighting, and the monster gets thrown against the wall, and his head splits open <laughs> like a Warner Brothers cartoon. <laughs> Remember that? I was like, what? But the attempt to redeem the hero after he's been turned is always something that kind of bugs me. Mm. Like, one of my favorite movies, as you know, Derek, is Near Dark, the Catherine Bigelow vampire film. Right. And that whole bullshit at the very end about if you give a vampire a full transfusion, she ceases to be a vampire. Oh, yeah. What the fuck? I have seen yeah. that in other movies and used in other books and stuff yeah, like I that. Mean, that I'm willing to if forgive you give, If you give somebody a complete yeah. blood transfusion, that will reverse the effect. I'm willing to forgive that two minutes of stupidity because of the... Well, the, 90, well, the 98 yeah. good minutes that came before. Exactly. Yeah, true, yeah. You can give it a pass. It, it's Tim Thomason beating up Lance Hendrickson. Yeah, I could deal with that. Right. <laughs> okay, so we about ready. I think we're about done. Is... We've been going on for a while. We've been having a great deal of fun. Yes, indeed. Is usually the tradition we allow our guest host to pimp his wares first. Yes, so pimp away, sir. Why, thank you. If you haven't heard my podcast, Lord Bloodraw's Nerve Racking Auditorium, please do check that out. It's at www.drunkenzombie.com or on iTunes under Drunken Zombie. If you haven't heard the Drunken Zombie podcast, check that out, too. Mm-hmm. Four guys from Peoria talking to horror movies. What else do you want? What else do you need? And they have their own, just like with the horror movie hosts would have their own little recording cast of strange characters. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, like, indeed. Like no, Zombie no. Ninja. What? That's right. Yeah. That's right. I'll call in from time to time. Patrick. The, yes. Uh, little, little Irish madman. <laughs> <laughs> well, Patrick has it. Have you been listening to Scream Queens? Patrick's... He's- I haven't yet. I've been meaning to. It's great. Now, Patrick is a very gay man. Okay. Yes. But uh, unlike, you know, because we were talking about, I love acapella music, and I'm looking for a new acapella podcast since the one I used to listen to went away. And unfortunately, my problem is many of them are, and there's no other way to put it, so very, very gay. <laughs> you know we just lost 30% of our Sorry, audience guys. right now. By that, I mean they're just so over the top and campy with it. Yeah, I know what you mean. Patrick, and it's not RuPaul campy. Yeah. It's like I said earlier, yeah. this is Priscilla Queen yeah. Patrick can be campy, but A, he's smart. Okay. He's very intelligent. He knows what he's talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. And be unlike these guys that I was referring to who are campy. But have you ever noticed that campy works when it's done smart? Yeah. Yes. But Patrick uses his campiness for humor and for, for keeping the show lively, and that's what I like about it. That's great. I've met him, and he's a hilarious guy. Just fantastic. But I have not checked out his podcast yet. Podcast, whatever. Yes. <laughs> and if you're in the Bay Area... Well, other than that, I'm doing live shows here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So if we've got any listeners in the San Francisco Bay Area on, well, I've said it a couple of times, October 29th, Val Theater, San Leandro, mm-hmm. Abin Costello meet Frankenstein, plus the original Little Shop of Horrors, in my opinion, the better of the two, Little Shop of Horrors. A Not film the- that came out of the idea of, hey, I bet you can't make a movie in a day. Damn straight, <laughs> yeah. Roger Corman, man. 
Roger Corman doing damn near guerrilla filmmaking. Gotta love him. Oh, yeah, I love Roger Corman. But that, and again, John Stanley's going to be a special guest there because it's a Halloween celebration, having a costume contest, special psychotronic film show, weird little film clips and movie and uh, music clips all on Halloween. And live from the stage, we will be raffling off a real dead body. <laughs> what? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, absolutely. Whoa, 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 whoa. At least it's not my dead body. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Rewind. Back yeah. up. You got a actual dead... Okay, let me ask you. Whose dead body is it? I... We don't bother getting identities. Or <laughs> <laughs> some, some, guy, some guy came up to his house in a wagon, knocked on the door saying, you know what? Dr. Crippen, would you like a new body to die? For legal purposes, I'm putting a stop to this line of questioning right now. Moving right along. <laughs> Thank you. Because, yeah, the questions might arise. Yes, that. yes. For legal purposes, Tom, we are going to... Okay. <laughs> but it is happening, by the way. I neither confirm nor deny any involvement in this. This never happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, man. Other than that, yeah, I'm doing the podcast. Oh, 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 where's, what am I thinking? You listeners in Peoria, Illinois, I will be hosting live the Drunken Zombie Film Festival. Oh, yeah, that's coming up again. Right, November 4th and 5th at the uh, Landmark Theater in Peoria, Illinois. We have to go one year. Yes, we should. Oh, please do. It's a blast. But road trip! Would, we've talked about right. doing Pulp Arc as well next year. Maybe we should do the kind of like road trip, better in the dark world tour. Road trip! Nice. Yeah, this is the second year in a row that I'll be out there hosting mm-hmm. a lot. Oh, okay. Is that it? So I guess it's time for us. Whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you want to say that Van Helsing was the greatest movie ever made, in which oh. case you're nuts. You know we're going to get emailed about that. Well, There's a number of ways you, you can reach us. You can uh, send us an email at betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. You can join our message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. We have a Facebook group. Just look up Better in the Dark on Facebook and join us. We're not hard to find. Derek and I also have Facebook presences separately so under our own name. So come on by. Be our friend. Um, if you want to do things such as stroll through the BITD Hottie Hall of Fame, you can go to betterinthedarksite.com, which is, of course, uh, mastered by our uh, great webmaster, Kelly Loge. Yay! And we'll give you anything you need to know about Better in the Dark. We also invite you to check out PulpWorksPress.com, where Four Bullets for Dylan, Derek's new book, is available for reading. Ah, pick it up. Daddy needs a new pair of everything. That's right. (laughs) Derek has a blog called The Ferguson Theater, if you're interested in his movie reviews. It's got all my movie reviews up there. I'm doing a thing now, this month, I don't know. I've already missed one day, but I've been putting up a review of a horror movie. Every every day, day, one a day. Yeah, I missed one day so far, so I can be excused. Okay. And I've got Damn Damn Your your Eyes, Damn Your Ears. Ten Statements About. Ten Statements About, yes. And Brave Viewed World, which Mm -hmm. is the recently debuted television segment of that. Finally, of course, we want to invite you to come down to Mm alteredvisions.org if you are interested in fan fiction to check out our Avengers. Tom is doing Avengers West Coast and I'm doing... Avengers. That's right. So if you saw that kick-ass trailer for the movie and you want a fix right away, here's where you go. You won't be disappointed. So we're busy guys. That's right. We keep out of trouble. So we want to once again thank our guest host, Lord Bloodrock. Thank you. It's been an 
Auburn a privilege, and thank you very much. Leary, I'm horror extraordinary. We look forward to talking to you again in the new year when we start our trip through Universal. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm perfect reason to rewatch all of them back to back. But listen, anytime you want to come back, you don't need a special occasion. Just, Just let us an email and let us know. Listen, I want to come on and talk about this and you have a standing invitation, my friend. Because we had a blast, my friend. I did too. It was fantastic. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And until next time... Are you going to tie it all together, Tom? I'm going to tie because we've talked about so many things. Let's see... <laughs> Until next... Occupy Transylvania. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> Occupy Transylvania. <laughs> Good night. God bless. <laughs> Support your local blood bank. <laughs> and remember, call together now. Go see, see that, that movie. movie. Good night. <laughs> Well, that takes me back there. We had a grand party every year. Of course, we always to go back to the embassy, <clears throat> which in New York is Bellevue Hospital. Zombie. Horror of Dracula. This Island Earth. You've been listening to Better in the Dark featuring Thomas, CJ, and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to our special guest, Lord Bloodraw, Patrick of Scream Queens, Brian Higgins of Hamacus, Eric Froman, of course, all the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark wants very badly to punch wolves in the snout, but it needs to work up to that, so it's going to start with punching puppies. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please offer us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.betterinthedarksite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.b-hyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E. J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that a Carl Kolchak who lives in a shishi house in the Beverly Hills is probably just a poser in a fancy suit. Ha, 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 ha,